Our hope is that we're a blessing to you uh, because we're clear. Uh, We want to be clear that we have hope in Jesus Christ, that he has come in the flesh. He lived a life that we could never live. He took on the wrath of God, died absorbing the punishment that we deserve for our sins, and that he rose on the third day, offering us new life. We want to be as clear as we can about these things because they offer, we believe, the only path to real and lasting hope in the universe. So, I want to say these things clearly because we would hate for the possibility for you to join us on a week like this and to somehow miss, miss that. We don't want you to, to miss it, and uh, if you have questions about these things, please, please talk with us. Uh, I want to take a moment. I'm going to invite you, if you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Genesis 47. Uh, if you have you know, some place to, to look for that, and I encourage you, I hope that you do have a place other than the screens behind me. I think it's a blessing to you. Uh, to know where these things are, to have a place where you consistently go, um, and also so that you consider the words that are being taught and are being discussed in Scripture. Uh, as you're going there, uh, I just wanted to say, uh, say hello. My name is Lance. If we haven't got a chance to meet, hopefully sometime in the future we will get that chance. Um, I also wanted to tell you about uh, someone that we partner with uh, for gospel work in our city. About once a month, we try to take some time on a Sunday morning to make sure that you know where it is or how it is that we have taken opportunities to partner with people who are doing good gospel work uh, in the world. We call these gospel partners. Uh, If you ask us, we we have a couple of different ways that we think about gospel partnership. Uh, In some sense, we we try to be as sending as we can be of certain gospel partners, and we have people that we have relationships with, people who have been members here that we have seen God take across the world in far-flung places. Uh, we also have people that we partner with as gospel partners that we consider and, and think of as supporting them the best that we possibly can. They may have a different sending organization. They may have a group of people who are uh, their team that they are with and, and working with, but we see the work they're doing. More than that, we see them, and we love them, and they're a part of who we are, and so we work with them. There's other instances where people have spontaneous trips that come up, or things that they didn't plan for, and we may also just say, well, let's spontaneously um, bless them and care for them. And so when I say gospel partner, you may hear this in a bunch of different ways, and I just want to be clear about some of the ways we think about it. This morning, I want to describe someone who we support and work with and cherish relationship with because not only does she work in gospel ministry, but she's here in Tallahassee. Alexa Johnson is a staff, is a staff person with Navigators Ministry at FSU. Uh, Alexa uh, has been in Tallahassee for a number of years now. In fact, to be able to support her in ministry is a gift in a unique way because a number of years ago, Alexa was baptized right over yonder, that's what we call that area, over there. Uh, She was baptized over there and holding a microphone shared her testimony of having come to Tallahassee as a student at FSU, not knowing Jesus, not understanding that she has forgiveness of sins offered to her in him, and meeting some other college students who helped her to move into her dorm room. In fact, I think her story was, if some of you guys recall this, her story was that her dad went out and found these students and tried to introduce her and uh, how embarrassing, she said it was, to have a dad trying to make friends for her on her first weekend of college. But it turned out that a few of those friends introduced her to Jesus, and then she described her discipleship over the next three, four, five years. 
and now is giving her time and her life uh, to lead Bible studies and to meet new students and to share Jesus wherever she can go. And so Alexa Johnson uh, is our gospel partner for this, uh, this Sunday, for this, these number of weeks, and I want to take a moment and pray for her, uh, for her ministry at FS, FSU. As you can imagine, they have had to reimagine uh, what ministry looks like in, in these days, as everybody has had to reimagine a lot of life. And so we can pray for clarity and for insight. Uh, we can pray that the studies and the, the good work that she is doing in discipling uh, young women one-on-one would be able to continue and that she'd see good fruit. So are you with me? Can we pray for Alexa and hold her in our hearts and say we're, we're with you and we're grateful for the work that she's doing? Let's, let's take a moment and pray. God, thank you. We thank you for the life that you've given to Alexa, for the new life, for the new creation that she is in Christ. And I thank you, too, that the joy that she received in the Holy Spirit, we thank you for the impulse that she's had from the very beginning to turn and to continue to to tell people of life in Christ. I thank you, God, for being the one who gives to us the ministry of reconciliation. And I pray that that ministry would continue in power and in fruitfulness and in strength in Alexa's life. I pray for the navigators as a whole. I pray, God, for the opportunities that they have, for the the new ways that they're having to think about uh, reaching students in these weeks and months. God, I pray for a blessing on them. God, we know especially how important how significant university students are in our town from FSU and FAMU and TCC and the, the kind of impact that could take place in our world if, Spirit of God, if you would move. And so we pray for a kind of revival, for an awakening, for a stirring towards spiritual things uh, for young men and women in our town. I know that as Alexa works and thinks and leads Bible studies and interacts, God, I pray that she would begin to uh, long deeply for these, these kind of outcomes, for people to, to know you, and that she would see the fruit of her work. I pray that when there's discouragement, that you would give her strength. God, we pray for financial provision. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to give and to partner with her. God, ultimately, Uh, We ask that as the days and weeks and months and years go by, that you would receive the most glory possible through Alexa's life, and that she would know the affection, the love of a father who sees her as a daughter and who can say to her that she has done well, that she has been faithful. So we thank you for her, and God, I pray that our commitment, along with hers, would continue to grow, to to be a witness, to be a presence, to be loving and sharing and proclaiming here in this community. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read Genesis 47 this morning. So if you've turned in your Bibles and you found your spot, I'm going to start in the the first verse. I, I think that for the most part, it'll be easy for you to catch up, but one short synopsis as we get started. Joseph is now not only ruler and in charge, essentially, of all of Egypt's economy, he is a close advisor to Pharaoh, who is 
basically the power of the world at this particular moment. After a couple of decades, Joseph, not only in this position, but his posture toward his family has been completely turned around. He's revealed himself to his brothers. His father and brothers have now made their way toward Egypt. They went out in a, in a glorious and wonderful reunion just took place in Genesis 46. And now Genesis 47 is about the tactics that Jacob and his family, led by Joseph, are going to take to figure out how do we interact and how do we position ourselves in a foreign land. We've been God's people. We know his promises. We're not exactly sure how this is going to turn out, but we need to figure out how are we going to survive and what is God doing by sending us here and promising his presence. And so this is about them strategically living in a foreign land. That's what Genesis 47 is about. I'm going to start reading in the first verse. I'm just going to go down through verse 12. I'm going to pause there, and uh, we'll pray together. But this is the 47th chapter of the book of Genesis. So Joseph went in and told Pharaoh, My father and my brothers, with their flocks and herds and all that they possess, have come from the land of Canaan. They are now in the land of Goshen. And from among his brothers, he took five men and presented them to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds as our fathers were. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. And now, please, let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Let's take a moment and pause there. And uh, we've prayed often this morning already, but let's pray specifically that God gives us eyes to see and ears to hear in the text. God, thank you for scripture. Uh, I pray that we would respond according to our confession, that what we profess concerning this word and these words, that they're living, that they're active, that they have power to lay us bare before you, to to get to the honest soul of who we are. That's our confession, and so I pray that you would not make us liars this morning and treat this as an idle thing. We know the temptation in our own hearts to be distracted or to see this as something that is just a, a meaningless exercise or something that is routine. And so we pray against that temptation. God, we do confess our neediness this morning. None of us is wise. None of us so righteous as to impress you. We come with hurts and with pain 
become very distracted and disinterested. And yet we've come because you are our God, you're our Father, you have mercy for us. And so, Holy Spirit, would you carry us along? Would you open our eyes and dig for us ears? We have the very words of God in front of us, and we want to live lives that are pleasing, that are honorable, that are glorifying uh, to the Father. So help us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I read down through verse 12 because I want to take the first 12 verses as a a bit of a section, a section that I'm just going to call blessings. And then in a bit, when we consider this section, I'm going to read down 13 through 25, and we're going to see that there is a concern or description essentially of bondage. And then finally, the end of the book, the last number of verses, a burial. 27 to 31. So, blessings and bondage and burial is how we're going to break up the text. Those are going to be the key little concepts, so the way that we think about these passages, this particular story as it's told before us. But before I get to that, I I want to point out something, because in addition to, I think, the specifics that are happening, there's some big picture themes and contrasts taking place in Genesis 47 that need to be wrestled with and considered as we dive in. The first relates to the constant restlessness, or so it seems, the restlessness of God's people, and it's bound up in this word that Jacob mentioned, that the brothers mentioned when they came, in the very fact that they're having to travel and go to a new place. That's this concept of being a sojourner. The whole concept of being on a sojourn means that you are on the move. You have not planted roots down. You're not settled And so it's taking place in this entire picture. I think the thing we're supposed to be seeing thematically from the story of the whole Bible is what does it mean to be God's people in this world? And inevitably, what we're learning so far, at least in Genesis, inevitably living in a fallen world for God's people. They're His covenant people. He loves them. He's going to protect them. He's going to care for them. But they don't get to kick up their feet at home and say, I belong. This constant theme of sojourning is there, and it's being contrasted, and we can see it because you'll note the words that the Pharaoh says. He says, well, why don't you settle in the land of Goshen? And then later, Joseph settles his people, and I think that thematically what we're supposed to be thinking about is, where do these people belong, and how do they get there? This is really the story of the, of the Old Testament in many ways, this anticipation of how can it be that God's people are so called and so blessed and they have a covenant promise and relationship with Him, and yet they're constantly on the move and restless. This is a big thematic question, especially for the restless among us, probably including me. So, restlessness and sojourning and settling, these are big themes of all of Genesis, and it's still happening. A secondary theme, and we're going to talk specifics when we get in here to this book, but a secondary theme that's going to be, become very, very important is the idea of freedom and bondage. So, is it possible to be constantly sojourning in new places and new lands and be subject to new kings and to ever truly be free? What's the connection between a homeland, a place, 
and true freedom. And so what's going to happen in Genesis 47, we haven't read it specifically yet, is that all of Egypt is essentially going to be bound. They will be bound. And for those of us, again, this is a specific chapter, but we're not quite all the way there yet, but for those of us who are paying attention, the concept of bondage is very, very important because soon we will be reading Exodus. And so that theme should be in our hearts and in our minds as we read. It's already been a theme, of course, in Joseph's life. He's sold off into slavery. And now we're still thinking about it in the big picture. Okay, so if we're attempting to read Genesis 47, we're putting big banners over the top of our study, and it's those two concepts, sojourning and settling, and then what does freedom, liberty, and bondage look like? Those are just big concepts, I think, to think about before we jump into the specifics. So I said I was calling verses 1 through 12 blessings. I get this, of course, from this interaction between Jacob and Pharaoh. The idea that Jacob, who is a wandering, hardship-riddled old man about to die, the fact that he would bless Pharaoh is an intrigue, and I want to talk about how do we get to that point and what is it supposed to tell us? But the first thing that we notice is that Joseph has given wise counsel to his brothers Remember at the end of 46, he told them, I'm going to bring you in front of the Pharaoh, and when he asks you what you do, I want you to say this. You have one job. You see, what's your job? And then they had one job. See what we did there? You have one job. You're a shepherd. So the question becomes, why is Joseph so insistent on telling them to say that they're shepherds before Pharaoh, and then why do the brothers accommodate? And why do they say, we are shepherds? The point here is that Joseph knows that in order to save his brothers, they are going to need to find a place in Egypt, but they need to be careful to not seem a threat to Pharaoh. They are going as refuge, or they're going for refuge as refugees, but Joseph is not naive to the situation that they will find themselves in. They will be total strangers in a land where the ultimate power is not in their hands. I was reading a commentary on Genesis 47, and someone pointed out a little limerick, a little poem from Sophocles, who was a fourth century playwright, author kind of person. And the, the little two lines goes like this, he who refuge seeks at a tyrant's door, once enters there, is free no more. And this is the wisdom, I think, that is stirring in Joseph's heart. He knows, yes, we've found refuge, but we're essentially, we are, we are foreigners still, and the power is not ours. We're seeking refuge at a tyrant's door. And from the beginning, his concern is going to be that they do not seem a threat to the person that has power. They want to be provided for, but not conspicuous. And they do that by two ways. One, he's told them, tell them you're shepherds. Because, and the text tells us, I guess as everybody knows, shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. I don't even know. I was trying to think through what occupations would we even say for this, and I thought I can't even go there because I would offend somebody. So I guess everybody just knew a shepherd. Are you kidding? I don't know. I'd have to say something like a thief or something, something we universally despise, 
right? Okay, maybe like a Comcast employee or something. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what it would be. I just don't want to offend people, but you know what I'm saying. Like, everybody knows. So he's told them, we're going to do this by two ways. We're going to find refuge, but we don't want to be conspicuous. We need to examine this threat. The first thing, by your occupation. But then second, perhaps more important, what the occupation will gain us is a foothold in the land, but we won't be too close. Goshen will be a region of, of rural insignificance in the bigger picture. That's the concept here. Not only how they're going to be positioned next to Pharaoh, but where they will live in relationship to him. And Joseph is very, very wise. And so the brothers come in, and they have a kind of blessing that they're going to offer to Pharaoh, but I would call it a, a common grace blessing, a customary courtesy that they offer to Pharaoh. They call him essentially their Lord, that they are his servants, your servants. Please let your servants, they request humbly. And they offer to him a, the courtesy that is due a secular or a, a king or a person of power. So they humble themselves before him. This is the first kind of blessing. It's maybe not as broad as we're going to see in the coming verses, but it's real nonetheless. They don't go in and make a scene. They don't go in and demand. They give honor where honor is due. And then as a result of this, we find that Pharaoh of all people, Pharaoh the tyrant, of all people who has been perhaps the most surprising, but it maybe only surprises those of us who have forgotten that Scripture tells us that the hand of a king is like a, a river in God's hand. He can turn it wherever he wishes. And so this Pharaoh continues the theme of providing protection for God's people by blessing them in return. He blesses them by saying, yes, the land of Egypt is before you. Settle here, your father and your brothers, in the best of the land. Not only do you have a place, but take the best of the land. And in this case, the best of the land was this area of Goshen that Joseph desired for them to be in. What we see this as is Pharaoh, a human blessing God's people. But of course, for those of us who have paid attention, we realize that this is in fact God's hand blessing them. This is God's grace. This is the way in this particular moment that God has chosen to preserve his people. Sometimes God miraculously drops manna from heaven, and other times he works through human means to preserve us. Sometimes you just get a job. Sometimes you just have a kind neighbor. Sometimes you need the doctor who understands your heart. In this case, what God's people have found is a benevolent pharaoh. But we should never, ever, ever forget that this is, of course, God himself giving refuge to his people. It is here at this point. So there's been these kind of blessings. The common grace blessing of one power saying, here's refuge to a group of wandering people in need. We've seen the common grace, sort of common courtesy blessing of these humble brothers before Pharaoh. However, when Jacob is introduced in verse 7, I think we find the word blessing in a bigger way a more full way. Jacob is brought before Pharaoh, and the moment that he comes before him, note the posture of the two. This interplay is, I believe, a hint at the kind of upside-down world we're supposed to be looking for. Jacob has 
nothing going for him. Jacob is not strong. He doesn't have armies. He has been tested by evil and suffering through his days. He doesn't, he doesn't have even food or grass for his flocks to eat. But it tells us that Jacob stood before Pharaoh face to face and that Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now, likely in both this blessing and the last, there is some sense that this was a regular hello and goodbye, but it's much, much more than hola and adios. The concept here, wrapped up in Jacob as a patriarch of God, standing before Pharaoh, is that Jacob stands and is in position to call down the blessings of God Almighty upon Pharaoh. And what a picture, a contrast, in human terms, a refugee who says, I'm basically dead, I barely got here who has nothing but 70 people scattered, coming, saying, we're going to die if you don't help me. And yet, those with spiritual eyes stand and look and see the ruler of the whole world being blessed by the man of God, receiving receiving commendation from the ultimate king, from the one who rules everything. It is not small for Jacob to offer a blessing to Pharaoh. In fact, then all that Pharaoh has, if he does not have the blessing of God, he has nothing. This could have been, if Pharaoh had eyes to see, one of the best opportunities of his life. This is going to be more than all of the gold that Joseph later brings in. To have the blessing of God from a man of God is massive. And it is a beautiful, beautiful contrast. You know that if you pay attention to the way God works in the world, right? The, the, the low get high. The high are really low. The wisdom of the world is foolishness. You know these exchanges that take place in the economy of God, right? This is just how it works. Jesus, born in manger, comes to Jerusalem riding as a king on a donkey. And this again, a picture of God working in the world, not in the way that we'd think. But what a moment, Jacob blessing Pharaoh. Pharaoh asks him something that in our day and age seems a little bit rude. You ever meet someone? Hey, this is my neighbor Sue. How old are you? We don't do that. So perhaps Jacob is correct in that he barely got there. Maybe he's so out of sorts that Pharaoh responds in a weird way. He's just received a blessing from a patriarch of God, a man whom God speaks and wrestles with and whose presence is very there, there, and Pharaoh seemingly in blindness says, well, how old are you? And Jacob responds to him in a way that could be odd to us. The days of my sojourning, there's that concept. He sees himself as this is part of his identity. He is one who wanders, who does not belong. He says, 130 years, which we choke at. Wow. And then the next word, few. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And then he helps us out to see what he's comparing them to and why he says few. He is comparing himself to his grandfather Abraham, to his father Isaac, who who each respectively lived somewhere in the neighborhood of 175 years plus. So Jacob feels shorted by only 130 years, and he attributes it to the suffering and the evil that he has seen, including famine and loss of children, 
and neither of these should be downplayed in the realities of a difficult life. Grief will wear you out, I think is what Jacob is finding. And then, after this short little exchange, this discussion, Jacob leaves with the blessing once again of Pharaoh and goes. And Joseph essentially provides for and gives possession to a settlement in the land, in a place that is not their own. And we see this temporally as a blessing. So if you paid attention, Joseph's wisdom blesses the brothers to keep them in relationship, right relationship to Pharaoh, and the brothers give a common courtesy blessing of humbling themselves before Pharaoh as Lord. And Pharaoh blesses them by saying, here's some provision and go ahead and live for a while in this place, not only some place, but the best of Goshen where you wanted to be. And then Jacob more fully blesses in the name of God Almighty, Pharaoh, not once but twice. And then finally, all of Joseph's family, his father, his brothers, and his household and their dependents are provided for. This is temporal blessing. The text leaves this family from there, though. As it's often done, God's people, their journey is filled with moments of silent patience and existing. God has not abandoned them, but the story is not constantly in minutia on them. And so we turn to verse 13, which I'm going to start reading now. And we're going to consider what takes place in the rest of the land as they finally get to their spot and are somewhat settled as sojourners. This is verse 13. We'll read down through 25. Genesis 47, verse 13. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. So the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they had bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them food in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the herds, and the donkeys. He supplied them with food in exchange for all their livestock that year. And when that year was ended, they came to him the following year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is all spent. The herds of livestock are my Lord's. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our land. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for food, and we with our land will be servants to Pharaoh. And give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be de desolate. So Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for all the Egyptians sold their fields because the famine was severe on them. The land became Pharaoh's. As for the people, he made servants of them from one end of Egypt to the other. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had a fixed allowance from Pharaoh and lived on the allowance that Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. Then Joseph said to the people, Behold, I have this day bought you and your land for Pharaoh. Now here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And at the harvest you shall give a fifth to Pharaoh, and four-fifths shall be your own, as seed for the field and as food for yourselves and your household and as food for your little ones." And they said, you have saved our lives. May it please, my Lord, we will be servants to Pharaoh, 
So Joseph made it a statute concerning the land of Egypt, and it stands to this day that Pharaoh should have the fifth. The land of the priests alone did not become Pharaoh's. In short order, years are going by, and as the years go by, we continue to see the shrewdness of Joseph. Joseph is running Egypt's economy in an absolutely astounding way. Because of his dreams and because of the God-ordained place that he has in Pharaoh's world, over the course of these years, not only does Egypt survive this terrible famine, but they enrich themselves. They grow as others diminish. Eventually, all of the money is in Pharaoh's house. And all of the animals and the livestock are in Pharaoh's house. And they're desperate to the point where these people willingly give over their lives, their very selves, their time, in order to survive. Then more than that, Joseph says, here's a kind of tax, a perpetual ongoing payment to the king. I can't help but think of Joseph bald-headed like that guy on Shark Tank. You know the O'Leary guy who's always like, here's the deal. You're going to run the company and do everything you want. I'm going to give you five cents, but you're going to give me 10% for the rest of your life. You know how he always wants in perpetuity. He always wants the royalty. You know that guy? Well, this is a literal royalty to royalty. 20%. And it stands to this day, the writer tells us that Pharaoh gets a fifth of all that is produced in the entire land. Now, kindness aside, which what a statement to say, you know, kindness and love aside, morality aside, ethics aside, all these things, so you see which direction I'm coming from. I mean, you could not get a more successful, in human terms, economic advisor than Joseph was for Egypt. We need to get rid of the Fed and get Joseph. Please don't tweet that. I'm like, our pastor says get rid of the... I know that's a thing. And how pompous of me to think that you would tweet anything that I would ever say (laughs) from this place. But what happens here as a backdrop, and remember the big themes that we're thinking about, What's being brought forward here is the theme of bondage. And where are God's people in relationship to this? Are they free? Do they have liberty? Are they living? Are they okay? Are they surviving? And once again, we have the theme of bondage. From the beginning of Joseph's life, all the way back to Genesis 37, he's 17 years old, slavery becomes a theme. He's sold into slavery. Then once in slavery, he's in charge of slaves who are in prison. Then he gets out of prison but has to go back and languish there. Here, all of Egypt is imprisoned by their lack and by Egypt's plenty. There is proverbial wisdom here that he who owes is slave to the borrower. And we find it completely walked out in real time here in Joseph's day and age. And all the while, those of us who know the full story 
are seeing and thinking about the relationship of God's people and earthly freedom to their promises that they have in God's covenant. So far, as we can tell, at this particular moment, they are free. They're free, living as refuge. Refugees. I I doubt that they got out of the 20%, but they have a place, and they're existing, and they're not yet slaves, it doesn't seem, in that sense. So the question has now become, what kind of blessing did they receive in getting to Goshen? And how are they doing in relationship to the bondage and the slavery that they're finding in this middle section where all of Egypt now is at the, as beholden to Pharaoh because of lack and need? And what we find is, is that Jacob has been processing these questions too. He's maybe wondering things like, well, who am I exactly? And who is our family? And where are we from? And what are we doing? And how are we surviving And these thoughts are coming to him because Jacob is forever thinking about his death. And that's where we pick up in verse 27 of Genesis 47. Jacob is concerned for his burial. Let's read these last five verses. Genesis 47, 27. Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it, and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 years. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt. But let me lie with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now it reads very clearly here as though, it seems as though Jacob has died. And the, the narrator, those who, the, the writer here of Genesis for us, Moses as he compiles these things is, is going all over the place. We saw a couple chapters Over the last couple of chapters, we've basically got an obituary already for Jacob. Here, it tells us the fullness of his years, so his totality is in view. Then it tells us this phrase at the end of 31, he bowed himself upon the head of his bed, and it sounds like, well, is that a way to say that he croaked? Is he he done? Is it over? Doesn't seem like quite yet. He has some more blessings to give out, and it's the totality of the next couple of chapters. But nonetheless, something is happening here. Jacob, after 17 years of living in in fruitful multiplication in the land of Egypt, has not forgotten who he is and the promises that God has given him. He's worried about where he will be buried. And he knows something. He's committed to something that he is not to have as a final resting place a place in Egypt because it's not where he belongs and it's not the promise and it's not his true inheritance. And so after all of these years and after all of this time and after all of the earthly and temporal and worldly success, Jacob gives us some instructive wisdom at the end of his life. 
And that is, is that he has never, ever, ever forgotten that he is a sojourner. And I want to say this as clearly as I can. The people of God, this is what we're finding in Genesis, the people of God, no matter what is happening around them, no matter happening, what is happening within them, no matter if they're having earthly world success or they're finding a severe famine, the thing that they continue to do is position themselves. In fact, they stake their entire identity on the promises and the covenant of God. They have a settled place. Everyone around them is in slavery and in bondage. The land of Canaan is suffering in severe famine. Jacob is seeing his family succeed, but he does not tie himself to that world. Could anyone have blamed him after so much suffering and so much evil and so much sadness and so much grief for not wanting to sort of cuddle up and say, I like this world where we're spared all of this famine and we're spared all of the slavery and my son, we talk about a proud father, and my son is in charge of it all. And yet Jacob does something that any person who desires to live honorably before God must do and must wrestle with. He does not lose his identity in the place that he temporarily dwells. It turns out that the lessons that Jacob and his people are having to wrestle with are going to be the same lessons that God's people will always wrestle with. That is, no matter how comfy your little niche can be in the world that you create, you must never abandon yourself to that world or you will be sorely disappointed. God has given us an inheritance that is far, far beyond what we can ever carve out here and now. The question between sojourning and settling is before all of us in the same way that it was before Jacob and his family. And I know this to be true because the rest of the story of the Bible does not ever let God's people rest save one eternal hope, that ultimately we will have a better place, a better kingdom, a dwelling in Christ. He will be our rest and will never rest anywhere else. What Jacob has learned is he's living in the world, but he has not bound himself to it. This is a very, very difficult lesson. I know it must be difficult because the Bible commands us to remember these things again and again and again. And where the Bible commands again and again and again is often because God knows we're weak in these areas. Let me read a few places where this is not just Jacob's task to remember that as a person of God and in the people of God that he must dwell faithfully and he can receive the blessings gratefully, but he must never identify ultimately with the place that he's at. That's our lesson too. Here's one example. <clears throat> We're going to read it from the book of First Peter in the second chapter. First Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles... Well, there's that word again. God calls you, as a Christian, a sojourner. You don't belong here. As a sojourner in exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. It goes on in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or as to governors as sent by him to by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. There's an additional encouragement similarly in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you were doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Peter's instruction in 1 Peter is echoed here, I think, in many ways by Paul, who is teaching people how to live well and how to love well as those who don't truly belong. He sees them as separate from those who he calls outsiders. He wants them to live wisely among them. 1 Timothy chapter 2 Instruction to Timothy, this young man trying to figure out how do I be a person of God and lead God's people, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. First of all, then, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. These instructions from Scripture remind us that as we interact with the rulers of this world, as we interact with the needs and the wants of our physical lives, as we engage the people around us, as we make a life here, that we must never, ever, ever forget that our ultimate hope and our ultimate belonging and our ultimate king is not here. There is a reason that Scripture tells us that Christians ought to be known for reasonableness, and wisdom, and love, and I dare say a couple of times mentioned here, quiet, good, loving work. These kind of instructions are not foreign for people like you and me who must live here and interact and know how to love well all the while while the world and the the rulers of the world seem to be raging and changing and switching around us. Here's the temptation. The temptation is to live here and now as though what happens here and now defines you. And the story of God's people forever is that God will be faithful and He ultimately rules and He is more than able to preserve and to bless and to care for His people no matter who is in charge or who is not in charge. There is a settledness that we get not in this life, not in the possessions that we gain. The only settledness that God offers ultimately is an eternal 
spiritual settlement in Jesus Christ. And so I would urge you to obey Scripture, to pray more regularly, to seek peaceable interactions with those around you more regularly, to work quietly in a dignified way more regularly, to love deeply more regularly, to fret less, to complain and murmur less, to command your soul to be less attached to the news cycles around us, to invite an understanding in our midst that we don't ultimately belong. We can work faithfully and we can rejoice and receive the blessing of this world and I hope that God blesses. All of us long for integrity and for righteousness and for God's glory to be done here and now as it is in heaven, but the temptation and the sad thing would be if we ever identify so clearly with here and now that we lose ourselves as we watch and as we vote and as we think about the world swirling around us. Let's pray more. Let's work more steadily. And ultimately, please, 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 love one another well. This is not your home. Come what may, God will be your father. We will be his children, and we will be preserved for his glory. And I wonder sometimes when I say to myself, have I spent even 10% of the amount of words and worry on the things around me? Have I even spent 10% praying about any of these things? Oftentimes the answer is no, it's just way more fun to discuss. I ask myself something like this, Lance, when people interact with you about the things of the world, including COVID, or including masks, or including education, or including the economy, or including voting, or whatever it is, do they walk away thinking to themselves, wow, I am moved by the reasonableness, and the love, and the integrity of that Christian man? And, if I'm honest, oftentimes I may think, mm, God help me. So, I want to take a moment as we consider this passage and close today. It's obviously, for many, many reasons, a kind of... I mean, a, these, aren't, these aren't meaningless. Don't hear me that saying that. The things happening in our world are not meaningless. They have consequences. We pray for uprightness and for good. But let's not lose ourselves, right? Let's not lose our identity. Let's be like Jacob who says, hey, it's been 17 years, a lot of stuff's going on, all the craziness says, bring me back. I want to remember my home. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to obey 1 Timothy chapter 2. I'm going to offer supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings 
be made for kings and all who are in high positions and for all people, that we may live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And if that's your heart, and if you say like, yeah, I'm already there, let's do this. Or if you say, well, this is a little challenging, and I don't know what you're saying, and sometimes I'm a little skeptical, and what are you trying to say between the lines here? Uh, Let's let the Spirit of God please move us to a kind of unity, and let's pray. God, thank you. As we watch the world around us, thank you that this is not our ultimate inheritance. Thank you that this is not what you've promised. This is not the the coming of the covenant. We have a much deeper, richer, wonderful inheritance in Christ. And I pray that our true hopes would never be found in temporal or earthly things. I pray that we wouldn't downplay what we have in Christ and give people the impression that our true hope or the true goodness would come from something here and now. And God, I admit that this is a hard thing to do. How do we balance living here and now and truly loving and caring about the things that are going on around us? How do we not be lazy or indifferent to the real consequential things that are taking on in our midst? How how do we engage without living here, without being tied up here? So God, we pray for wisdom. I pray that we would be bound together with God's people down through the ages who have figured out how to do this, how to never forget who we are, where we ultimately belong. And God, I pray now for all who are in places of government and influence and policy, all the way from the White House down to local school boards and environmental regulation committees and just everything imaginable, the things that affect our lives. God, we pray for those people and for those places that their activity, that their decisions would be honoring and pleasing to you, that they would lead to a greater love, a greater unity, a greater reconciliation amongst the people in the world, and that ultimately those who are in high positions those who have been, those who will be a few short days from now, that they would govern in such a way that we would be able to live peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. God, give us peace. Give us an an abiding, abounding, world-proof peace. God, I pray that for my own soul and for your people. God, give us a kind of quietness, not, an, not a lazy or an uninterested quietness, but a, a settledness of soul. The kind of rest that comes with knowing that you're sovereign. The kind of trust that lets you work out the things that we can't control. And God, I pray for godliness. I pray that no events of the world, no election, No anger or frustration or resentment would lead us or seem so important that we would abandon abandon basic principles of godliness, that you would teach us to love our neighbor as ourselves, that we would care about holiness, that we would want to be growing in the fruit of the Spirit, 
and that those would be the things that would mark our world. So, so God, have your way in this place. And ultimately, God, I pray for us to be dignified. And in all of the ways that in a struggle for power, our world seems to be willing to be undignified. I pray that we reject these things. And that when those on the outside look in and see us, that we would have a peaceful, restful, upright, and dignified life. You've taught us to pray these things. This is straight from Scripture, and so I pray that this would be our response. God, help me, uh, convince me, and convict me to pray more regularly and more often about these things. God, thank you for being king. We submit ourselves to you, and we pray that you would rule and lead in a way that gives you maximum glory and leads to our joy. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.